men. Throughout the entirety of the church age, Christians have been trying to expose the identity of the Antichrist. For example, we can go back to the first century when many believed that Emperor Nero was the Antichrist. And one reason why? Well, it's because his name in Greek, when transliterated into Hebrew, is equivalent to the numerical value of 666, which we all know is the number of the Antichrist. And and so this was one of the reasons why many people looked at Emperor Nero and thought, he's the Antichrist. His name equals 666. Well, the time of Nero came and went, and we you know, eventually saw he wasn't the Antichrist. But then there were those in the church who became convinced that it must be Adolf Hitler. Yeah, many people believed Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. And while the Holocaust was certainly a good reason for making this assumption, others also used a numerical formula to show how his name, Hitler, also added up to the numbers 6 Six, six. And while many were convinced by this calculation, well, we can now say for certain that Hitler, though he was an Antichrist with a little a, uh, he was still not the Antichrist. Other famous names that have made it to the growing list of suspects, well, this includes President John F. Kennedy, who received 666 votes at the 1956 Democratic Convention. convention. And so everybody you know, thought, oh, this must be the guy. He also then died of a head wound, uh, which is supposed to happen to the Antichrist. And so you better believe that there were Christians who were waiting for him to come back to life, uh, as foretold in the book of Revelation. And yet he didn't. And so we know that JFK was not the Antichrist. Well, then there was Pope John Paul II, who also recovered from a serious gunshot wound after an assassination attempt. And, And yet we know he's not the Antichrist. What about Mikhail Gorbachev? Uh, He was the president of the Soviet Union, and he was born with a mysterious birthmark on his head that some say looks like a six. Others say, "Eh, kind of more like Florida. But uh, I guess it all depends on the camera angle. But uh, we know that he's come and gone, and he wasn't the Antichrist. Let's not forget that Ronald Reagan, (laughs) President Ronald Wilson Reagan, was accused of being the Antichrist because, you know, his name, Ronald Wilson Reagan, uh, you know, equates to 666. And and not only that, but he also recovered from a wound that appeared to be fatal at one point. And and so some speculated that this was the Antichrist rising from the the, the dead. And yet we know that that's not the case. My favorite name on the entire list of names, well, it's Barney. That's right. Uh, You know, Barney the dinosaur was once believed to be the Antichrist. And listen, those who were proponents of this theory were quick to insist that if you write cute purple dinosaur (laughs) into ancient Latin characters and then extract the Roman numerals from those letters, it all adds up to the number of the beast. That's right, 666. And and so, you know, they thought that Barney must have been the Antichrist. The, The real problem, though, with this theory is that Barney, the cute purple dinosaur, he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't Jewish, nor was he circumcised, as far as I know. But, uh... But so anyway, we know that the Antichrist must come from the tribe of David because the Antichrist is here in place of Christ. And so it only stands to reason that we must rule Barney out of the list. Now listen, if you're a Christian who is currently trying to identify the Antichrist, if you're thinking it must be Soros or it must be Safari or it must be you know Trump or it must be Biden or it must be... Listen, if this is how you're spending your time, listen, I'm here to tell you you're wasting your time because I'll remind you that the man of sin will not be revealed until the age of the lawless one begins. And while we won't be able to identify the Antichrist on this side of the rapture, Paul did provide us with some details about this age of the Antichrist. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we're going to begin to see that the age of the Antichrist will result in deception. Not only that, but we'll also see how the age of the Antichrist will result in delusion. Thirdly and finally, the age of the Antichrist will result in destruction. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul presenting us with more information about the age of the Antichrist. And as you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. 
It'll help us to remember that Paul was helping the original recipients of this epistle. He was helping them to understand the events that uh, will lead up to the return of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And as we learned throughout the studies that we've engaged in for, uh, you know, throughout the first eight verses of this chapter, I'll remind you that the great apostasy is, is going to happen first as many in the church begin to embrace doctrines of demons. Then the restrainer who is restraining the mystery of lawlessness, the restrainer will be removed as the church age concludes with the rapture of the church. At the same time, it's also important to remember that the restrainer has also been restraining the rise of the Antichrist. Therefore, the removal of the restrainer will also result in the rise of the lawless one who is better known as the Antichrist. And then as we saw in our study last week, the removal of the restrainer will also give way to the age of the Antichrist. This, of course, will uh, begin with the confirmation and the enforcement of a seven-year covenant, which is mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. And as a result, many of those who end up being left behind with Nicolas Cage, uh, they're, going to, they're going to embrace the Antichrist as the savior of mankind. And, and one reason why is because the Antichrist will rise up and deceive the world with the supernatural signs and wonders of Satan. This brings us to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, And I want to pick up our study at verse 9 where Paul declares, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's focusing our attention on the coming of the lawless one. And just to be clear, it'll help you to remember that the lawless one is another title for the Antichrist. And it's here in this chapter where Paul helps us to understand that the coming of the Antichrist is going to occur after the restrainer is removed. And seeing how the removal of the restrainer coincides with the rapture of the church, well, it only stands to reason that the rise of the Antichrist won't occur until after the church is raptured. And and, and so we should notice here that the Antichrist, when his age comes, the age that follows the church age is the age of the Antichrist. And within this age, the Antichrist will rise up to take power over the earth as he sets out to accomplish the work of Satan. I want to consider again how Paul puts it there in the beginning of verse 9, because there he declares the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Now that word working, it's translated from the Greek word energia. And while there are times when this word is used in reference to the supernatural power that God provides to those who are serving him, Paul was also using this same Greek word to describe the superhuman energy that the devil is going to provide to the Antichrist. Now, this is not to suggest that the devil and God have the same amount of power. You know, there are some who believe that, you know, God and the devil are equal in power and they're battling it out and we're not really sure who's going to win and these sorts of things. That's not true at all. Listen, God, our creator, has omnipotent power. He is all-powerful. The devil, uh, who is a fallen angel named Lucifer, is a creation of God. And so it would be silly to think that the devil, who is a creation of God, has the same power as his creator. No, God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. The devil is not. And yet the devil can conjure up some level of supernatural power, you know, in order to empower this individual that we'll recognize as the Antichrist. The devil, uh, during the age of the Antichrist, the devil is going to empower the Antichrist to deceive people with powerful miracles. And to prove my point, let's take another look here, beginning at verse 9. Here again we learn that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now that word power, when, when Paul says that he will have all power. That's not to say that he's going to be all powerful. But no, the Antichrist is going to have all of the power that belongs to the devil. 
So all the power that belongs to Satan will be uh, you know, appropriated by the Antichrist. And as we consider that word power, well, it's translated from the Greek word dynamis, which is the root for our English word dynamite. And this dynamis, or this, this power, well, it speaks of supernatural strength. So the Antichrist is going to have strength that is beyond the, the natural strength of humans. The same Greek word also refers to the power necessary for performing miracles. And as we consider this definition, uh, uh, there should be no doubt in our minds here that the devil is going to provide the Antichrist with the power that he needs to perform supernatural miracles, all with the goal of deceiving the people who are here during the age of the Antichrist. Not only that, but the devil will also enable the Antichrist uh, to, to be able to perform supernatural signs. And just to be clear, that word sign is found there in the second half of verse 9. Well, it's translated from another Greek word, which speaks of an un- unusual occurrence that transcends the common course of nature. So there's the way things that nature uh, naturally happens. And when something happens uh, that is unnatural, well, this would be a sort of sign. The, the word signs is oftentimes used in reference to some sort of signifying event like an unusual eclipse or maybe fire falling from the sky or these sorts of things. And according to Paul, the devil is going to enable the Antichrist to perform these sorts of deceptive signs. Finally, we should consider the way in which the devil is going to empower the Antichrist to perform what Paul calls lying wonders. That phrase, lying wonders, is found there at the end of verse 9. Well, it's translated from two Greek words which refer to pseudo-miracles, which the Antichrist is going to use as the devil uses him to deceive the masses. So, you know, much like Chris Angel, you know, the Antichrist is going to come along and perform miracles, but they're going to be pseudo-miracles. There's, it's going to be, you know, tricks and smoke and mirror and these sorts of things. All the while, the people who are still here, they're going to be convinced by these omens. And, and, and with that being the case, we can be certain that this is all part of the devil's deceptive scheme to convince the people here on earth that the Antichrist is really the Messiah. That really is the goal of these signs and wonders and, and lying, you know, lying wonders and miracles. And you know, the devil is going to dupe the people who are still here into believing that the Antichrist is actually the Christ. And to prove my point, let's take a closer look here at our text today. I want to focus your attention once again at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look with me there at verse 9. Here we learn that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now I want to stop here and I want to draw your attention to the fact that the power, the signs, and the lying wonders that the Antichrist will eventually perform, these will all be accomplished according to the unrighteous deception of the devil. Just to be clear, that phrase, unrighteous deception, well, it can also be rendered wicked deceitfulness. Wicked deceitfulness. What this means is that the devil is going to empower the Antichrist so that he can deceive those who were rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, with this as his goal, we should take a moment to consider the meaning of this title, Antichrist, which helps us to understand what sort of deception we're talking about. You see, the, the title Antichrist, you know, we're going to consider the word anti and Christ, and, and the title Christ, well, this is the Greek word that means anointed, and it's also a word that's synonymous with the Hebrew word Messiah. So whether we're using the Hebrew word Messiah or the Greek word Christ, both of these words mean anointed, and so they're synonymous. So uh, whether we're talking about Jesus as the Messiah or Jesus as the Christ, you know, we're talking about the anointed one of God. So we find this then in the title Antichrist. And the, the, the Greek word anti, well, it can speak of that which is opposed to or opposite of. And that's oftentimes how we think about this, how the Antichrist is going to be opposed to Jesus Christ. And that's true. The Antichrist will be opposed to Jesus Christ. At the same time, though, it's also important to understand that the word anti can also mean in place of or in the stead of. And in the case of the Antichrist, 
the lawless one is not only going to be opposed to Jesus Christ, but the devil is going to use all unrighteous deception to deceive the world into believing that the man of sin is the Christ, that he is here in the place of Christ. Or in other words, the unrighteous deception that the devil is going to be you know, uh, engaging in is to convince the world, and especially Israel, that the Antichrist is their Christ. With this as the goal, I want to remind you of something that Peter said. It's actually in Acts chapter 2, it's verse 22, where Peter declares, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. In other words, Peter here was informing his audience that God the Father presented the people of Israel with evidence of our Messiah's arrival. And he did this how? By attesting to his identity with miracles, wonders, and signs which were all powerful proof that Jesus is the Christ. Well, it's in a similar yet satanic fashion that the devil is also going to use all unrighteous deception in order to convince the people who are here that the Antichrist is the Christ. And the devil is going to empower him to perform powerful miracles satanic signs, and lying wonders in order to convince those who are here to follow the Antichrist. But they think they're going to be following the Christ. And it's sad to say that there's going to be many who end up you know, following the Antichrist. There's going to be many who worship him during the time of tribulation. And one reason why, according to Paul, well, it's because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's right. Uh, They're going to follow the Antichrist because they rejected the love of the truth while they were here during the church age. In other words, uh, the world is going to be filled with those who embrace the false Christ. And the reason why is because they refuse to love and accept the truth of Jesus Christ that could have saved them. And while it's true that this will be the spiritual state of the world during the first half of the tribulation... Well, it's also true that we find ourselves now surrounded by little antichrists who are spreading the same sort of deception that the antichrist is going to spread in the age of the antichrist. I like the way that the apostle John put it in 2 John chapter 1. It's verse 7 where he informs us that many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. In other words, those who reject the physical incarnation of God the Son, they are deceivers who are actually opposed to Jesus Christ. And listen, they're not only opposed to Jesus Christ, they're not only antichrist, but they're also antichrists who are trying to take the place of Christ Jesus. They want to stand here in the world and act as if they themselves are the Christ. Think about it. Those who teach deceptive doctrines about our Savior Jesus are simultaneously exalting themselves above the Christ. They're actually you know, trying to present themselves as Christ. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to identify and avoid those who are acting as antichrist, you know, with a little a. We'll do well to, to identify the deceivers who are trying to deceive us by denying the incarnation of Christ Jesus. And in this way, we'll safeguard our lives against the deceptive doctrines of demons that will result in the great apostasy of the church. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, the age of the Antichrist, which is still yet to come, uh, this age will not only bring with it demonic deception, but the age of the Antichrist will also bring strong delusion. And With this as the focus, let's continue making our way here through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's now describing the delusion which will come upon the world after the rapture of the church. And so with that, let's back up and begin reading again there at verse 9. Here we learn that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion 
that they should believe the lie. Now, here in verse 11, we find Paul, he's referring now to this delusion which is going to come upon those who are left behind after the rapture of the church. And what this means is that those who will not receive the love of the truth prior to the rapture of the church, well, they end up embracing the deception of the devil as they begin to worship and serve the Antichrist because they believe that he is the Christ. Then as they begin to worship the Antichrist, that's when they begin to suffer from the strong delusion that will eventually come upon those who rejected the truth of the gospel message. And listen, they will not only suffer from delusion, but according to Paul, they're going to suffer from strong delusion. It's not going to just be delusion. It's going to be strong delusion. And with that, you might be interested to know that the word strong, which is found there in verse 11, uh, it's actually translated from the same Greek word that Paul used back in verse 9 when he referred to the working of Satan. The Greek word that's translated working, it's that word energia. Well, that word working or energia, uh, it's the same word that, that Paul is using here in verse 11. What this means then is that the working or energia of Satan, which will be manifest through the power, the signs, and the lying wonders, well, this energia will end up causing strong delusion or energia of deception in the minds of those who rejected our Redeemer before the restrainer was removed. And to further grasp the nature of this strong delusion, well, let's take a closer look at our text today. If you would look with me again at verse 11. Here again, Paul declares, for this reason, God will send them strong or energia delusion that they should believe the lie. Now, Paul seems here to be saying that God is the one who is going to actively send strong delusion into the minds of those who will be left behind after the rapture of the church. And seeing how the word delusion can also be rendered deception, well, then we should take a moment to ask, is God going to actively deceive people after the rapture of the church? Is God going to actively send strong deception into the minds of those who are left behind? Or is there some other way to understand this passage of Scripture? Well, in order to answer this question, it's important to remember that Paul here is referring to a specific group of people. He's talking about those who did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved prior to the rapture. And if I understand this properly, then what this seems to, to suggest to me here is that these are the people who were presented prior to the rapture with a clear explanation of the gospel message. But rather than receiving the truth of the gospel, they instead decide to reject the gospel of grace, which unlocks the love of the Lord by which sinners can be saved. Therefore, Paul was referring to those who knew they needed Jesus and who understood the gospel of grace prior to the rapture. But then, rather than receiving him by faith, they decided to reject the love of the truth by which sinners can be saved. So, so that's the specific group of people that he's talking about who will then suffer from strong delusion in the time of tribulation. Not only that, but listen, it's also important for us to remember that the Holy Spirit will no longer be restraining sin in the same way that he is here in the church age. When it comes to the age of the Antichrist, the restrainer will have already been removed. Remember, the restrainer is removed, which means then the church is also raptured, which gives way to the age of the Antichrist, and so we're no longer in the church age at this point in time. And I'll remind you that God the Father sent the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church age to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I like to think about the church age as having the bookends of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the church age, the Holy Spirit is sent to bring the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then the conclusion of the church age occurs when the Holy Spirit is then removed, the restraining work is then taken away, and the Holy Spirit begins to shift gears in the way that he is working here in this world. After the restrainer is removed, meaning after the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit during the church age is taken away from the earth, 
that's when the Holy Spirit shifts gears and we learn in the book of Revelation that he begins working through the 144,000 Israeli evangelists. That's how people will come to Christ during the time of tribulation, which is the age of the Antichrist. The Holy Spirit will work through the 144,000 Israeli evangelists who will then go out and reach unbelievers. As for those who were here during the church age, those who heard the gospel of grace and then rejected the love of the truth, well, as they enter into the age of the Antichrist, the Lord is going to give them over to their debased minds as they willfully embrace the deceptive lies of the Antichrist. And as they embrace the Antichrist, the Lord will effectively harden their hearts as he locks them into the delusional decision that they chose to make prior to the rapture of the church. He's going he's, he's gonna to give them over to their debased minds as they enter into the age of the Antichrist. Rather than thinking that God is actively deceiving that specific group of people, well, it seems to me that the Lord is simply going to give them over to the deceit of the devil as they embrace their own defiant delusion. Now, to further grasp my point, I want to consider the way that Paul explains this in, in the letter that he sent to the church in Rome. So if you would, hold your place here in Second Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Now, as you make your way to the first chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to remind you that there is only one sin that cannot be forgiven. There's only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and I'm, of course, referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Those who commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they cannot be forgiven here in this world, so therefore, they won't be forgiven in the next. And just to be clear about this, listen, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is committed by those who repeatedly and without repentance reject the testimony that the Holy Spirit brings to the unbeliever regarding our need to repent and receive the love of Jesus Christ. And those who commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, well, they're eventually given over to their own delusion as God hands them over to their own unbelief. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 1. It's beginning there at verse 28. There, Paul declares, uh, and he speaks of those who did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And so God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that there's a point in time when God will simply give a person over to the delusions of their debased desires. And it's at that point in time when they're trapped in their own delusional disbelief, which then leads them further and further away from the grace of God. And I believe that this will be the state of those who rejected the gospel of grace just before the age of the Antichrist. Further proof of my point can be found in Revelation chapter 9, where John describes those who will actually be here after the sixth trumpet judgment is blown. And it's in Revelation chapter 9, that's where the Apostle John informs us that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle John describing the delusion of those 
who will somehow survive these three plagues that will come upon the earth after the sixth trumpet is blown. And while you would think that these people would finally wake up, that they would finally realize that they need to repent, that they need to cry out to the Lord Jesus so that they might be saved, well, they won't. They won't. No, instead, they continue worshiping their demons who are represented in their idols of gold and silver, brass, stone, and wood. And not only that, but they will continue to engage in their sexual sins and their murderous abortions and their drug-induced sorceries and all of the other sins. They'll continue. They will not repent. Why? Well, because God has given them over to their debased minds to live for their delusions. Please trust me when I tell you that those who think that they'll just wait for the rapture before turning to Jesus, those who think that, well, I'll just wait and see when the rapture happens and that'll clue me in that it's real, and then after that, I'll turn to Jesus and and get saved, right? Those people will be in for a rude awakening because these are the very people who will end up being trapped in the strong delusion that the Lord will send as he allows the Antichrist to come and deceive the nation. So the Lord's not the one giving the strong delusion. No, no, instead he's allowing the age of the Antichrist to happen. And it's the Antichrist who will bring strong delusion into the minds of those who are given over to their debased desires. And it's for this reason that we should spend time encouraging every unbeliever we know to repent and receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Because listen, those who don't on this side of the rapture, well, if they're here at the time of the rapture, then they're going to end up suffering the destruction which will come upon those who uh, will worship the Antichrist during the age of the Antichrist. And this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the age of the Antichrist will not only bring satanic deception, and the age of the Antichrist will not only result in strong delusion, but the age of the Antichrist will also bring sanctified destruction. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because it's here in our text today where we, where we find Paul. He's referring to the day of destruction, which will occur at the end of the age. In order to make my case, let's back up here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's begin reading again at verse 9. Here Paul declares the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that there's coming a day when those who worshipped the Antichrist during the age of the Antichrist will end up being condemned. Just to be clear, that word condemned, it's found there in verse 12. It's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are selected and separated, sanctified even if you will, and brought before the judge so that they can receive a righteous judgment for the crimes they committed. And while this separation occurs at the end of the tribulation when the sheep are divided from the goats, well, the judgment that will result in final condemnation won't take place until the end of Christ's millennial kingdom. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the way that the Apostle John uh, used the same Greek word that's translated condemned. He uses this in his description of the great white throne judgment of Jesus, which will take place at the end of the millennial kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's in Revelation chapter 20. It's verses 11 through 15. Here the Apostle John declares, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now here in these verses, we find the apostle John, he's describing the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. And this is the time when those who rejected the love of the truth will be set apart and brought before the judge of heaven and earth. And it's there at the great white throne judgment of Jesus where they're going to be judged according to all of their works. And just to be clear, you know, when John spoke of the judgment here, he was using the same Greek word which is rendered condemned here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So the Greek word rendered condemned here in our text today, it's the same Greek word that John is using to talk about the judgment that will happen there at the end of the millennial kingdom. What this means then is that the people who are brought before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ, they're going to be condemned. You know, the Lord isn't going to get to the end of, of looking at all of their sins and be like, yeah, well, we can kind of forgive these things now, right? No. They're going to be judged and condemned according to every single sin that they ever committed. At the same time, it's also important to realize that those who end up being condemned, well, they're going to be condemned because of their unbelief. Not because of their works necessarily, but because of their unbelief. And I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you would look with me again there at beginning of verse 11, here Paul declares, For this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. I want to stop there. I want to consider this reason for why people end up being condemned before the great white throne of Jesus Christ. Because, you know, according to Paul here, they're going to be condemned because they did not believe the truth. And this is so important to understand here because, listen, we've all sinned. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve the same condemnation. And so how is it that we escape this condemnation while unbelievers suffer condemnation? And the distinction, the difference, it's not because we're better than them. Don't, don't you dare look at an unbeliever and think that you're somehow better than them. We're all sinners. We all deserve the righteous wrath of God. But we are saved and unbelievers are condemned because of one little truth. And it's the truth of unbelief versus belief. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are spared from everlasting condemnation, while those who reject Jesus Christ will suffer everlasting condemnation based on their own choice to reject Jesus Christ. I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in verse 12. Look with me there in the middle of verse 12 where he assures his audience that those who will be condemned are those who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here in the second half of this verse, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that those who reject the truth of the gospel message are eventually going to be judged and condemned because of their unbelief. It's the unbelief of these people that bring them before the great white throne of Jesus Christ. And yet it's their lifelong pursuit of unrighteous pleasure which will result in the just judgment of everlasting condemnation. And to better grasp the point that I'm making here, I want to consider the way that Jesus explained this to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. It's actually in John chapter 3. There we find the Lord Jesus informing this Pharisee named Nicodemus about the way that God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might, might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, 
because their deeds were evil. Here in these verses, we're reminded of the fact that the Lord Jesus, he was sent to save sinners from the condemnation of the law. Jesus came to save sinners from the condemnation that we deserve. Yet at the same time, he also points out that those who reject him, those who don't believe in him, they're condemned already. Those who today in this world do not believe in Jesus Christ, well, according to Jesus, they are condemned today because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. It's sad to say that those who will not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God and continue rejecting the truth, well, at some point, God will determine that they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and he will give them over to their debased desires. And this will eventually result in the judgment. It will eventually result in the condemnation as they are judged for every single sin they ever committed. And that will occur there at the great white judgment throne of Jesus Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, it's important for us to understand that the age of the Antichrist is, is going to end in destruction. And, and in order to put this on a prophetic timeline, it will help you to remember that the church age will end with the removal of the restrainer, which is coupled together with the rapture of the church then the church age will give way to the next age, which is the age of the Antichrist, which lasts for seven years as the devil uses the man of sin to deceive those who will not love the truth of the gospel. And then at the end of those seven years, the Lord Jesus will complete his second coming and at the time of his return, he will destroy the enemy as he establishes millennial, his millennial kingdom. And then at the end of Christ's millennial kingdom, every unbeliever will eventually stand before the great white throne judgment of Jesus where they will receive the condemnation that they deserve for all of their sins. And with all this in mind, I want to consider the way that Paul describes the end of the tribulation, which then is also the, the end of the age of the Antichrist. And with that, I want to consider the way that he describes this in one of the verses that we looked at last week. So if you would, let's look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to back up and draw your attention to verse 8, where he declares that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. As soon as the restrainer is removed, and as soon as the church is raptured, that's when the lawless one is revealed, and at the end of that seven-year period, that's when he will be consumed and destroyed. That's how the, the, the age of the Antichrist ends. The Lord will consume and destroy the Antichrist. And just to be clear, the word consume, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context refers to the consummation of that age. So the consummation of the church age is the rapture of the church. The consummation of the uh, age of the Antichrist, well, this ends with the destruction of the Antichrist. And that word destroy, which is found there in the second half of verse 8, it's translated from a Greek word which refers to that which is rendered idle, inactive, or inoperative. The same word can also uh, refer to the unemployment of an individual at the end of the age of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be unemployed. You know, it's going to be like a Biden economy. You know, he's not going to be able to, to work. It also points to the person who is deprived of power. At the, at the end of the age of the Antichrist, the Antichrist will have zero power to do anything. And I like the way that John sums it up in Revelation chapter 19. It's verses 20 and 21. There he describes the day when the beast, that's the Antichrist, the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's right. 
You can say that the end of the age of the Antichrist is going to the birds. And John here describes the destruction that's going to occur as the age of the Antichrist is finally brought to an end. And according to John, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're both going to be cast alive. They're not going to be destroyed in the sense that they're going to cease to exist. Now they're going to be cast alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. The Antichrist is going to be dethroned and then destroyed as he's cast alive into the lake of fire. And it's there where the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're going to experience the endless suffering of everlasting destruction. Not only that, but the same will be true for those who served the lawless one during the age of the Antichrist. And to prove my point, let's back up one chapter. I want to draw your attention back to something that Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 6 where Paul declares, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished, notice, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Here in these verses, we learn about the way in which the age of the Antichrist will result in everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. And we're not talking about an annihilation or a cessation of existence, but we're talking about an ongoing everlasting state of destruction where people are rendered powerless and yet suffering in fire and in brimstone forevermore. And while the return of our Redeemer will secure the salvation of the tribulation age saints, we can also be certain that those who will become the servants of Satan through the age of the Antichrist, they're going to be rewarded with this eternal destruction as they're removed from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. And with that being the case, we would all do well to remember the warning that Jesus presented to his disciples. It's in Matthew chapter 10. There we find the Lord warning his disciples about the way in which believers are going to be persecuted throughout the church age. And it's in Matthew 10 verse 28 where he encouraged them to stand strong in their faith by declaring this. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, knowing that the saints of God are going to suffer persecution uh, in every age, the Lord Jesus encouraged his disciples to put these things into perspective by remembering that the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man results in bondage. And listen, I realize I'm following the news and I see the persecution of Christians making its way into the Western world. And there's been many areas of the world that, you know, where, where the church is, is heavily persecuted, and we, and we know about this. And yet now we're watching the persecution of Christians beginning to ramp up here in North America. And as a result, you know, more and more Christians are becoming more and more fearful of the persecution of unbelievers. They're, they're afraid of being canceled. They're afraid, you know, of being fired. They're, they're afraid of being marginalized. They're afraid of coming across, you know, like, like some sort of bigot or racist or whatever else they want to call us. And yet we must remember that the fear of man brings a snare. A tra- it's a trap, according to General Akbar. And it's a trap we don't need to fall into because the worst they can do to us is kill the body. Which sets our soul free so that we can go and be with our Savior. 
those who are walking in the wisdom of God will remember that the servants of Satan really can't do anything to us. They, they can't separate us from the love of the Lord, right? Can tribulation separate you from the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is no, of course not. We need to keep this in mind, especially as things continue to ramp up here in these last days. I don't know about you, but I see a convergence of events that leads me to think that the rapture of the church is on the horizon, and even if it's a thousand years away, still we see the persecution of the church happening here in the West, and it's starting to ramp up. That being the case, we need to make sure that we keep the proper perspective, which is the fear of man brings a snare, but wisdom uh, comes to us through the fear of the Lord. And there's not one thing that can separate the born-again believer from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I encourage you to remember that the age of the Antichrist won't begin until after the rapture of the church. The age of the Antichrist, that seven-year window that we call the tribulation, that will not begin until after the rapture of the church. And not only that, but listen, the identity of the Antichrist will not be revealed, not even by you, until after the restrainer is removed. The restrainer will be removed, and then the Antichrist will be revealed. With that being the case, you know, the church ought to be looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. We have to be looking for Jesus Christ rather than trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Is it George Soros? Is it Schwab? Is it, you know, is, is it Trump? Is it Biden? Is it Barney? Maybe. I don't know. Why are we spending so much time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is when the Bible tells us he will not be revealed until after the restrainer is removed? So are you looking for the Antichrist? Are you looking for Jesus Christ? Much like the day and the hour of the rapture, listen, we don't know who the Antichrist is. And we won't until we're already standing in the presence of our Savior. So what does it matter? How much time should we be spending trying to figure out the identity of the Antichrist? And I would say very little time. Now, I like engaging in the speculation as much as anybody else. But we shouldn't be wasting our time on this. Instead, we ought to be trying to you know, lead people to Jesus Christ. We should spend our time warning every unbeliever within our sphere of influence about the age of the Antichrist. And the reason why is because those who enter into the age of the Antichrist are going to suffer satanic deception. They're going to experience strong delusion. They're going to eventually experience sanctified destruction as the Lord returns and pours out his perfect punishment upon those who embraced the Antichrist. And with all that being the case, I encourage you in closing, let's spend our time warning the world about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, as we warn them, let's present them with the solution. Let's present them with the gospel of grace so that they might be saved from the age of the Antichrist. Let's pray.